Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Great. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here again, this time joined with Galina Angarova. Uh, she's an indigenous rights activist and the founder of, um, gosh, what was the name of the organization? It's, it's uh, I'm uh, the executive director, actually, not the founder. Oh, the executive director of? <laughs> Cultural Survival. Cultural Survival, yes. And I met Galina on uh, another call called... Uh, Earthrise, I believe it was, mm -hmm. um, with Proven Medley and a bunch of activists from around the world. Yeah, and I was just really struck by the story that you told. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're from Siberia, and maybe, I don't know, do you want to just uh, give us a little bit of your background? And, yeah, yeah, sure. Will do. Well, thank you again, Charles. I appreciate um, meeting you and uh, I've listened to some of the things you've uh, recorded and uh, I didn't realize you were so you know famous out there oh gosh um, that I, you're... <laughs> I think that's probably an illusion yeah yeah. Well, yeah well but I did appreciate a lot of that what I've heard and um, and uh, yeah let me just start with the um, a quick introduction I'm indigenous an indigenous native person to Siberia uh, I'm an indigenous rights activist, and I'm the executive director of Cultural Survival. It's an indigenous rights, indigenous-led organization uh, that was founded in 1972 in uh, Cambridge and actually in Harvard. Uh, and they work to support indigenous peoples in their fight for their self-determination, political resilience, and cultures since 1972. So it's a 48-year-old organization. Mm. Uh, a little bit more about myself. Uh, I uh, was born to the Abzai clan of the Ikhirit nation of Buryat peoples. And we're the largest indigenous people in uh, Russia, in Siberia. And my people have lived on both sides of Lake Baikal, which is the largest freshwater lake in the world that contains 20% of the freshwater, of all freshwater in the world. Hmm. It stretches 400 miles from south to north, from, from north to south, I believe. And um, the deepest point that the scientists found is uh, uh, a mile deep. Wow. So yeah, it's, I can definitely say that's my first love. Um, I would visit the lake since I was a child. And uh, my native village is actually only 60 kilometers to the west um, of the lake. And my, my, my uh, actual uh, clan is located on the western side of it. 
and we lived there since the time immemorial. Um, our communities lived off uh, the land hunting and gathering and bartering meat and fish and preserving food for winter seasons. And I grew up with my grandmother in our community of about 400 people. Um, my grandmother's name was Yekaterina. Her native name was Dulma, and she was the one who, who raised me. And um, through her ancestral stories, through our ancestral stories, we've the foundation of my values and principles. Mm. Yeah. Galina, I'm wondering, just for a little more context, because, you know, in North America, many of the native languages have been either extinguished or are severely threatened. And this is a pattern that's happened, I mean, everywhere, you know, even Scottish Gaelic is, go is completely gone. And I'm wondering what's the state of the language there? Has the same thing happened in Russia? Has, 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 is it, do you still speak um, your ancestral language? And what, like what's, how is it there? Um, you're right. I think that's uh, the same thing is happening everywhere. And I, I don't speak my English, uh, I'm sorry, my native language fluently. Hmm. I speak it when I get to the community and spend two or three days adjusting. Um, hmm. And then it all comes back. And I start communicating to my aunties and uncles and my relatives. And about maybe seven days, I, I, I feel more or less confident communicating like freely. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but unfortunately, when I'm out of the community, I have a hard time remembering yeah. the words. Um, and that's unfortunately the situation with all the people my generation and I'm a Gen Xer. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, something happened between my mother's generation and my generation, my mom speaks the language fluently and I don't, right? And my brother who is four years younger, he doesn't, he doesn't speak the language at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's understandable that if you're removed from the place, from the land, from the people speaking it, of course, like why would you be able to remember it? Especially because language, in my opinion, is not only a system of abstract signs but it is also an emanation of the land where you live. Which yes, is, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, when 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 you move somewhere else, where where do you live now? I live in uh, Ohlone territory, which is now known uh, the Bay Area, uh, the uh -huh. San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've been very passionate about indigenous rights for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe part of it is, you know, well, we've. Uh, exploited, we, meaning the dominant culture, has exploited and, you know, done great harm to these cultures, and it's time to stop doing that. But on another level, I know that each culture on earth is the custodian of important knowledge and important experiences that have to come together if our planet is to heal. So it's not just this, okay, we, get, we have to be nice now to the people that, you know, we've abused and dominated. It's also saying, wow, our civilization has reached a dead end. We don't mm -hmm. know what to do. The way that we make meaning of the world is falling apart. We don't know why we're here. And our technologies are not actually creating the paradise that we hoped for. And maybe we don't know as much as we thought. And maybe we can find some of that 
knowledge that has been lost to us uh, in other places and among other people who up until now we've ignored or, or worse. Um, but I, I just feel like, you know, this is not a charity, a charity mission. It's also about a beautiful future. And I wonder, yeah, how does that perception land for you? And what do you think about that? Yeah, there's so much unpack to unpack here. Um, so one thing um, that I'm trying to do for myself personally and for my organization and the people who work for cultural survival is just shifting from the victimhood to becoming the protagonist and the, the, the actors in this life, you know, going away from being beneficiaries and going away from constantly asking for help and being constantly asking for recognition to actually offering, proposing solutions mm. to the climate crisis, to the economic crisis, to the intellectual crisis, to the uh, spiritual crisis. There are all kinds of crises that we're facing today. And reminding people that we do have these solutions. Uh, we know how to live with the world, with the land that we're on in reciprocity and respect. And also understanding that we as humans, we're not the only or the highest intelligence on this planet. And there's much more to what we see and what we hear and what we taste. Uh, a lot of indigenous cultures believe that we have more than five senses. And one of it is intuition. Others are some, in some ways connected to understanding the land. Uh, my grandmother, for example, would wake up in the morning. She would know the weather for the day. She would know the far harvest is going to be like way before the harvest season. She would know it in the, in the spring. Mm -hmm. And she would know so many things that just the modern person has no way of knowing right now. And I would love to share some stories from my community too, to just to make up, to make a point. Yeah. I, I was hoping you would do that. Yeah. Every, any stories welcome that, that, feels like it wants to be spoken yeah um so again my grandmother was someone who really taught me a lot about this world and taught me a lot about the intuition and how to live in reciprocity and i'm, I'm so grateful for that that it was passed along to me it didn't break somewhere um, in between generations and that I haven't, I have a chance to pass it along to the younger uh, generation, like my nieces and my nephew. I remember that more than in my village, I remember that more than 95% of our food on the table came from the forest and fields uh, that we cultivated and from, from the cows and, and sheep and pigs and chicken that we kept. Only on rare occasions we had to buy some food in the grocery stores like salt and maybe wheat flour. Mm. And over the years, we would buy more and more of that and the sugar starts coming and it would be replacing some of our traditional foods. I recall that my grandmother, she had some excess of milk and sour cream and farmer's cheese and she would always share it with other families. 
while our other grandmothers would share meats and maybe wild strawberries or wild uh, blueberries with us. And at, that at any given moment that every family in our village had enough of everything and no one, no one went hungry. And that tells me that we lived in, a, in the abundance economy. I've been thinking a lot about it because um, even among our staff, we, we had some in-depth discussions, what it means to live in the current world, world as an indigenous person. It, what it means to be living in the world of abundance and what it means to be living in the world of scarcity. So the stories started coming up in my mind about how, about how I lived and how I transitioned from living in a village, in a small village, to, to a big city where the majority of the population was Russian and how it affected my development and how I got colonized in so many ways. And then how I moved to this, uh, to from the from Russia to the United States, and I got colonized in other ways, and how much it's taking me to unwire all these um, colonized ways in me, and to re-indigenize myself. And it's mm. been such a long and tedious process, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, I'm I'm th thinking of uh, what, mm. how you described. Well, a couple of things. One is the diet. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine that as market, you know, purchased foods from the outside mm -hmm. replaced traditional foods that people mm -hmm. probably got less and less healthy, Yep. which is something that has again happened around the world. And it's kind of the opposite of the ideology of progress, which says that the more of your life is monetized like mm -hmm. buying food instead of growing it yourself or finding it yourself or, or giving it. I mean, you were also described a gift economy mm -hmm. in your village. Um, when people stop giving and stop self-providing and purchase it, that's because they are making a cash income mm -hmm. and they are uh, entering the marketplace and their GDP is going up. Their per capita GDP is going up and an economist looks looks at that and says, "Well, they're better off. The per mm -hmm. capita household income is, you know, it used to be five hundred dollars, and now it's a thousand dollars, and they're able to purchase more goods, which means yeah. that they're better off. This is like the ideology of development. And and when yep. when we look at the UN talking about sustainable development, what they mean by development is that GDP is rising. Mm -hmm. So." Like this is my my belief, but I wonder if you have any firsthand experience that either supports or contradicts what I'm what I'm saying. Right. You know, funny you mentioned SDGs. I was the official representative of the uh, Indigenous Peoples Constituency to the United Nations to negotiate the language on SDGs for three years, mm -hmm. from 2013 to 2016. And one of the things on goal, goal one on poverty, I was advocating that there is um, a false understanding of what poverty means in indigenous communities, exactly for the reason that you have talked about. Because everything gets monetized, but if you don't have as indigenous person to, um, you don't have access to land, then you're losing 
your subsistence? You know, how can you monetize, let's say, the harvest of wild garlic from my grandma or fish or what you've hunted in the forest? Um, right. Your well-being is really connected to the things that the land provides, not to $500 that you're able to make on the market or something like that. So I was trying to advocate for, for that understanding, but unfortunately, a lot of it was just got lost in the process because what the governments were advocating is the universality. And a lot of the specificity was forsaken for, that, for the sake of universality. Uh, do I make sense here? Totally. Yeah. Right. And, and universality requires metrics. Mm -hmm. And the easiest metric is a financial metric. Like it's really hard to measure the kind of wealth you're talking about. Yep. That includes wild garlic and game from the forest. And I don't know, like maybe the village singing together, uh, yeah. creating, creating their own culture, creating their own fun. Um, you know, today we don't create very much. We purchase all of our fun even. Yep. So we need a lot of money to even have a normal baseline of life when we're not mm -hmm. meeting our needs in community. But from the economist's point of view, it looks really good and it's called development. So, but I think that it actually is impoverishment. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you have some, maybe again, you have some comment on this, but. Oh yeah. But, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, we just witnessed, um, I personally witnessed the gift economy being replaced with money economy in my community. And that, that's one story I mentioned, like when we exchanged the, the excess of the food among our families. But one example, another example was that when I was a child, um, we were like 15, 20 of us all cousins, all relatives playing in the field, playing in the dirt, swimming in the river, running through the forest. And my, my grandma's house was at the river and the furthest house from her house was maybe two miles away. It was kind of spread out. But throughout the day, we would play and run, but we were sure that we will be fed because every grandma in the village was keeping an eye on us. And if at lunchtime we would end up at some place near the forest, a grandma who would live there would herd us all into her house to feed us. Everybody knew we were taken care of and we had a place to go to eat and we had a place to go rest throughout the day. So that what gift economy was for me. And when the money started flowing into the community, when my mother's generation uh, started leaving the community into pursuit for of, um, education and careers in the city, we definitely experienced the shift. And with that shift, you know what came to the community? Mm -hmm. Alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So... That was maybe in the 80s, started definitely with um, 70s, 80s, and then uh, we felt dramatic change in the 90s. So basically, when you were a child, no one was paying for childcare, no mm -hmm. one was paying for food, 
No one was paying for entertainment. No one was paying for a climbing gym to give the kids exercise. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were very poor. You had to make do with no money. According, according to the uh, Millennium Development Report, a Sustainable Development Goals Report, we were poor, but we weren't. Yes. So why was it that your mother's generation went to the cities for careers? Was it because, because uh, you know, sometimes it's because indigenous life is portrayed as backward. Uh, sometimes it's because of economic necessity that a generation goes away. Sometimes there's many different uh, mechanisms that force people off the land or entice them off the land. What, what, what do you think it was in your village? I have my own theory and I want to ask later when I meet with some of my um, clan members, what it really was, but I think I'm in agreement with my mom. Um, I'll start with the fact that Buryats, my people, are the most educated nation in the former USSR. Uh, everyone I know has a degree or two or a PhD or two. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering why is that? It was a survival tactic. It was a trauma response to colonization. In order for us to survive, we needed to get ourselves educated, uh, ourselves educated, and we need to be better than them. So... If you go to a hospital today in my hometown, the majority of doctors are going to be Buryat. If you go to a, a university, the majority of the professors are going to be the Buryat. They got themselves educated, but it was a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Because if you get, get yourself educated in medicine or mm -hmm. academics or something, then you're at the same time, not getting educated in how to catch game in the forest or yep. how to grow barley or um, so, how so to read the weather, how to read the weather, how yeah. to communicate with your ancestors, Yes. how to see the dreams and interpret them, how to read the soil, how to read the wind, how to play with the wind. Mm -hmm. I still have those skills. Some of them, not all of them. And what do you um, what do you think the role of those skills is in our in the next stage of our species uh, journey? Survival. Survival, because I think that we've got so detached from the land, and my strongest belief in my pursuit of understanding of this life is. Um, our primary trauma happened when we got removed from the land mm -hmm. and something happens to human psyche when a human gets removed from the land and the a human starts objectifying the land, but it's, it's, it's life. Yeah. It's a subject. I mean, and we need to learn how to be in relationship. Sorry. Yeah. You know, this, I mean, this has been happening uh, you know, going all the way back to the enclosure acts in uh, Europe and, and England in the 17th century, which basically it turned communally owned land into private property. And people who had just lived off the land for, you know, tens of generations now all of a sudden were dispossessed 
and they became the labor force for the industrial revolution and and for colonization and everything. So I, I think that if there's anything universal that feeds our world destroying machine, kind of like you were saying, it is disconnection from the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, like, I don't think that what's at stake is survival. I think that it's that the real danger right now, it's not that humans won't survive, it's that we will survive on a planet that continues to die, which to me is a much scarier future than mm-hmm. humans going extinct and nature recovering. Mm-hmm. And this path of distancing from the land, distancing from nature, even distancing from materiality, distancing from each other has been going on for centuries and, and even faster and faster for the last few decades. Mm-hmm. And in that process, uh, our human numbers have increased, our life expectancy has increased, our GDP has increased, but our genuine wealth, our happiness has diminished. And I just think that if we do not start making different choices, why won't this trend continue until there are billions of us on a concrete planet where all of our food is manufactured in mm-hmm. you know, chemical factories and hydroponics factories uh, and, and where you know, each person is in a, a personal protective bubble and nature is something that we just look at on screens. Like, like, like we might survive, but everything that dies in that process takes a bite out of our soul. So I guess what I'm saying is that I see these skills that you're talking about, and these are more than skills. These are a way of being. I see them as essential to the survival of our soul. Mm -hmm. It's not our physical survival. And I I wonder if um, maybe, do you have any stories that can give us a glimpse of what we have lost that maybe we compensate for with more and more control, more and more material things, seeking happiness, chasing a rainbow, never finding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to maybe if you could confirm with a story, my feeling of loss, like that something so precious has been lost from the culture I grew up in and it is continuing to be lost but we don't know what it is. And if you can help us understand what it is, Mm. then maybe we will value it and hold it precious. And we'll say, wait a minute, we have to start choosing something else. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it's going to help, but let me just tell you a story. In 2006, seven, I think up to 2011, I was engaged in this high profile campaign in Siberia. And I was an organizer, um, campaign organizer at the time. And I was splitting my time between the US and the United States doing advocacy work on the ground in Russia and Siberia, mostly in the Russian Far East. And um, the Russian government announced uh, pipeline uh, development construction through um, 
one of the probably most important places in the world. It's called Altai. It's um, very diverse in terms of biological diversity, uh, important in terms of biological diversity and cultural diversity. It's a place of many indigenous cultures con converging in one place. And it's on the border with um, China, Kyrgyzstan, and um, Mongolia. Uh, it's considered to be a birthplace to many cultures as well. So they were planning to build a gas pipeline through that area. Hmm. And um, I think I, we did everything. We came up with a, a very um, robust multi-layered campaign targeting an IPO and a, on a Hong Kong ex, uh, stock exchange trying to raise $30 billion. Uh, then... Um, uh, registering uh, individual um, plots of land into uh, private ownership and then creating a landowner's council and uh, obligating the landowners not to sell off the land to third parties, just keeping it within the community so that it can be sold off to a gas pipeline company. And then also registering sacred sites and um, assigning them um, treating them as legal entities, you know, creating passports and uh, pushing a legislature in the local parliament to um, recognize sacred sites. Uh, so many things. We even supported and kind of jump-started a, 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 an alternative energy company uh, mm. <laughs> a kind of a providing an alternative to local um, people. Uh, alternative energy solutions so that they don't kind of vote for that pipeline and be um, on our side, let's say that. And But the, the, this plans, the gap, gas pipeline came coming back on the table, you know, uh, and I physically felt that it was a huge monster with several heads. You cut one head, the, uh, it grows up, mm -hmm. it grows out, you know. Uh, it was a long campaign we engaged many people we brought local uh we we brought people from Sakhalin island to talk about what the gas plan has done to them on their territory we brought people from the united states from specially protected areas and specialists in alternative energy you just name it it was like maybe 12 dozen to 15 strategies that we have employed mm. and I was engaged with local shamans in Altai, and they actually had to agree on um, whether I could work on this territory, sacred on this sacred land, on, on or not. And then they just actually issued me a permission to do that. But during one of the ceremonies, um, it was a fire ceremony, a traditional fire ceremony of the local Altaian people. I sat in front of the fire. And for a moment, for a brief moment, I knew what it was. I was staring at the fire and it was speaking to me. It was so real. It was, it's not explainable in, in words. You just know it. You just know it. You're like, ah, ah, we're one. Mm -hmm. I, and it's, I'm being very publicly vulnerable right now because as someone who's coming in as a indigenous rights activist, but I'm also kind of bringing my whole self into this conversation, right? 
as a, as a spiritual person, as someone who comes from a culture who that believes in in ancestors and talks to ancestors, someone who's had some some interesting experiences in life, and so that was one of the experiences, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I know the temptation to to you know maybe present yourself as being very scientific and very rational, so that yeah. you get credibility. But um, for the people listening to this, I think that the medicine that we need is to validate that mm-hmm. part of ourselves that also wants to recover our indig- indigeneity. And yeah. also like this business of healing the world, I don't think that the tools of reason and technology are enough. No. I think we need bigger allies. So no. so I'm so interested in what you're what you're describing here. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. So most of the time we talk to each other from our heads, you know, from head to head, and we're constantly in our head. All of our actions are kind of governed by what we keep in our heads. But I think it's so important to drop from the head to your heart and speak and live for there from that place and and that's what i'm trying to do in my work as well and and the work that i was doing on that gas that gas pipeline what became clear to me that one shaman told me galena you're doing so much you're doing these strategies you're coming from your head but you know the the most of the work is actually coming through ceremony and you have mm-hmm. to understand it that, that we're working in a different realm and what we're doing here is informing your work as yes. an organizer. Yes. It's not, that the, it's not that the organizing and the strategy and all of those 12 strategies you used are not important and that we should only do ceremony, but it's mm-hmm. that without ceremony animating them, then they won't accomplish what we hope for. Mm-hmm. Is that is that yes. accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that a lot of the things are happening in the different realm, and people are able to see that. You know, um, I I'm I'm I, even though I come from a family and a clan that has deep shamanic roots, I'm not someone who I'm not a shaman. Um, just communicating some of the things that the shamans see or do um i totally understand what they're saying and i also wanted to mention i come from a nation where where we had over a thousand shamans murdered by the communists in the at the beginning of the 19th century mm-hmm. and that trauma is still with us it hasn't been unpacked and healed for a lot of the people from my clan. And I feel the wrath of my ancestors, you know, that it needs to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. What what can you tell us about ancestral healing? Uh, Because I think that this is another thing that's probably universal on this earth. Yep, we, I think that we all carry tremendous amount of trauma 
it's both um, intergenerational trauma that comes from our parents, from our grandparents, and many generations that come before us. And we also carry our our personal trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, I would say that uh, the personal trauma is in some ways a reenactment of that intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was able to penetrate some of that and... Um, I still carry a lot of it in me and um, it has become a um, kind of a personal pursuit and journey for me. Um, how does your village or how does your nation work with ancestors? Uh, I mean, is there anything that is okay to share with outsiders that might be helpful to, to mm-hmm. us, you know, in, in our own reconnecting with ancestors? Yes. Um, so a few years ago, I visited my village and I was younger and um, I guess less informed by my own trauma, by my own pursuit and understanding. And I, I, I was just visiting my village and I saw a group of people wandering around. And among them were some of my relatives. And I wondered that what was going on and um, some people had kind of um, swollen extremities and faces and and I just understood after a while there were a group of alcoholics mm-hmm. and it deeply it, it it hit me so hard and every time I thought about it I kept crying because one of my uncles approached me and asked me for a hundred dollars, a uh, hundred rubles. And I knew why he was asking for that. And actually six months prior to that, I was in Alaska in Nome. I saw it was just identical. A group of people walking around and one of the people approached me and asked for $3. And it really hurt me too. And I kept thinking, and I couldn't do anything about it, you know. And after some time, and it became clear to me, we need to go back to ceremony. We collectively need to be in ceremony. In 2018, my mother and I decided to hold our first ceremony after about two decades of having no ceremony at all. And we prepared. It took us about five months to reach everybody in the clan. Um, 140 people were able to come and it took place in July of 2018 on our traditional ancestral land. Four days of of intense ceremony and I think that the miracles happened after that. I personally was able to have access to this immense body of knowledge that I didn't have previously had access to and it just keeps downloading. Mm. A lot of what I say today is informed by that. I I wouldn't say it's it's not mine. It's mine, but it's also not mine. It's ours. And then we also had another miracle. Two shamans came forward from my clan. And a side note that being a shaman is not hip and trendy like here in the United States. It's not that at all. In order to be a shaman, you have to have a calling from your ancestors. And it's a very hard life because people have to go through mental illness 
that's what we call here in the in the West, right? Mm-hmm. But there, it's it's a lot of struggle, and you have to go through a lot of physical struggle and mental struggle to finally arrive at a place of peace to become that in in our understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's just when I hear in the West people calling themselves shamans, it just makes me sad because of the sacrifice that happened among my people, losing so many people, so many shamans to the communist regime. Yeah. So, so two shamans stepped forward. And yeah, they did. Yeah. Were, were they the ones who held the memory of those ceremonies after 20 years or was this a separate? Um, they, it's, we believe that we carry memories in our genes in, the, in our genetic material. So a lot of it can come back, but a lot of it can be learned from other shamans as well, because we didn't have um, shamans in my immediate clan. And for that first ceremony in 2018, we had to invite a shaman from a neighboring clan who had exact memory of my of our lineage, hmm. of every person several generations back, maybe nine generations back. So these people who stepped forward know that have um, they they know the ceremonies and they know the lineage. It has allowed us to go back to ceremony into our ancestral land more often. So last year they had a ceremony again, and this year I'm not sure because of COVID. Uh, maybe private ceremonies will be happening in the summer. Mm-hmm. So, but. Yeah, I'm in touch with my community through my mom. So I'll, I'll know sometime, maybe in a couple of months. I wonder what you think about uh, how people who have been distanced from their traditional ceremonies, not just for 20 years, but for five or 10 generations, how can they begin to recover a ceremonial way of life without simply borrowing uh, or copying ceremonies from people who still have them intact? Like what's, what's the path back, do you think? I think starting with some research, I believe there's some incredible tradition in Europe that have been, of course, forgotten, but there are still some resources that are available. Like Celtic nations, Uyghuric nations, um, maybe I'm butchering the name of it actually, but um, mm-hmm. I think just doing some. St- I know a friend my, of mine, Rachel, you know, Rachel from Earth Rise Collective. Yes. Yes. She's been doing a lot of research and study. She, she had a calling uh, to pursue that kind of research. So I would do that. I, it's, it's hard to tell for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely I, I'm. I would say there's tremendous amount of trauma from uh, for people who come from European cultures. Just think about those all those women, two million or three million women who were murdered during the Middle Ages, right? As witch witch burnings and things. Witch witch burning. Oh my goodness, yeah. that yeah. might have caused tremendous amount of trauma on people. And if it um, if it it's unpacked and just travels through generations, it can definitely affect all the generations down the road, right? And other people mm-hmm. too. 
because I truly believe where an abuser, an abused becomes an abuser and kind of travel, that kind of travels through generations as well. Mm-hmm. So watch out for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I'm always asking this question that I just asked you. Orland Bishop, do you know Orland? He's, I'm blanking. Uh, he's um, originally from Guyana in South America, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, carries a lot of very deep spiritual knowledge from originating in, in West Africa, but also the European hermetic traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I asked him, you know, what actually even is ceremony and how do we recover it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he basically says that we can return to the source of ceremony, mm. uh, which starts with attentiveness. Uh, and even doing one small thing with full attention and, and precision mm-hmm. already is a ceremony, or even sitting in meditation is the origin of a ceremony. Mm-hmm. So, so he's saying that that it actually is accessible and can be recovered. That's 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 profound, actually. And and I've, I think when I think about my our ceremonies, that's exactly it. You know, it's precision. It's it's being in the moment. It's focusing. Um, it's true. Yeah, I also wanted to touch upon trauma a little bit more, mm-hmm. if I can, because I yes. think it, it might be useful. Because there's a lot of information out there on the inter- internet about trauma, but um, I'm just so happy I have been able to to deal with a lot of it uh, right now. And I was I was able to actually understand what trauma is for myself. And again, I, I'm, I'm not a psychotherapist or a psychologist of any sort, mm-hmm. but I, I had a lot of wounded, wounded, woundedness, yeah. <laughs> a lot of wounds, and that woundedness brought me to many places in the world, right? So I, I went to Nepal to sit in a monastery <laughs> in a mm-hmm. silent meditation. I went to... Uh, up to the Everest base camp a little bit above to to find the meaning behind the wood, woundedness. I, I went to Kilimanjaro. Yes. <laughs> I traveled to Machu Picchu. I and the place that I found um, the real um, kind of a response to an answer to my quest was my home, <laughs> mm-hmm. in my village, my, my ancestral land is actually, that was, that was my re- answer to it. And I also, I, I touched the service of someone's and I understood that's, that I needed to stay there. I needed to stay in pain, no matter how hard it was, be conscious about it and, and don't run away like I usually do. That was my main method. Even though I was searching for answers, it was always running away all over the world doing the work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I stayed with it and I penetrated it and I was able to get on the other side. And what I saw was incredible. I saw the jewels underneath the wounds. And I saw that there's so much energy is stored underneath the wounds. Mm-hmm. And that 
we as human species, we have tremendous amount of potential. There's human potential that is being untapped because of this trauma and wounds that we carry. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Uh, I also concluded in my quest that the wounds that I have are the comp- is the compass and mm-hmm. informs me where to go and how I develop as a human being in this lifetime. I also understood that any conflict that you have in your personal life and in your collective life, anything that arises, anything that triggers you is actually a sign that you have a wound and you need to address it. That was my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And the way to understand was gently, through gentle inquiry, to let's say seven or eight whys you usually arrive to the root mm-hmm. of that wound. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. I, again, something pretty universal to the human condition right now that I think speaks to everybody. Yeah. And, you know, even people who maybe don't have acute, obvious trauma in their lifetime or even their, you know, parents' lifetime, um, we don't even recognize some of the normalized trauma that's basically written into, into the dispossession that that pretty much every modern human i mean just like you know the the trauma of a childhood that wasn't like yours mm-hmm. um, where i mean today you know children in many many places can't even go outside to play mm-hmm. uh, and anyway i'm not going to go on about that too much i, I was, i'm just remembering a, a beautiful session i had with um i was on a collective trauma summit with Thomas Hubel mm-hmm. who does very deep work in this in this field um, I'm actually going to have him on the podcast uh, next oh, week wonderful. yeah wonderful. but this is like I mean it just seems so obvious to me that nothing really is going to change on this planet if we don't address and begin to heal the trauma yeah yeah and I do believe that everyone carries even though like we don't recognize it but even the fact that we have Trump, oh, I'm going political. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, in this, yeah. you know, and every a lot of people are being triggered by him. It's a sign of trauma. I'm sorry to say that, bring that up to mm-hmm. you. So, but uh, yeah. anything that triggers has is rooted in that woundedness. Uh, it's just have to be very gentle with yourself and just start with with an inquiry of why. Mm-hmm. Why is it triggering to you? Mm-hmm. And usually, and the, the, the most beautiful thing, it usually it comes down to, in the, in the end, after eight or eight questions, you come to the place of love and safety, the need for love and safety and recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can, and that need can hide under so many things. And justifications. Yeah. And I would add to that list belonging too. Belonging too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I really am grateful for this conversation. I feel like you've given us an awful lot to think about and also just a lot to feel, to feel into. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I wonder if there's, is there anything else that is on your mind that, that you would like mm-hmm. to share? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe I can share with that, with okay. the, that the best medicine is actually free. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm convinced because I'm all about finding the medicine. I, I try to apply that mes- uh, medicine on a daily basis, like a, f- a walk is a medicine. Mm-hmm. Being out in the sun is medicine. Hugging someone is medicine. Having someone kiss you is medicine. Mm. I think the strongest medicine is other words because we are all medicine. Like the core of us, their true nature is being medicine for each other. And I feel that since that ceremony I had um, on my traditional land that I was given that medicine by my ancestors, that kind of coming through my womb, my chest, into my throat, into my uh, mouth. And that's what we can do for each other. We can be each other's medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, and it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think everybody, everybody listening can feel the truth of that and can recognize that part of themselves that knows that they are also medicine. Yes. And also feeling the willingness to be available to be medicine. Yep. Um, sometimes we are not in that place, but remember, we all have it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> and you may arrive at that place at another time. Let's just be gentle to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <sighs> I guess we'll put links to cultural survival and anything else you want to mention right now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, so you know that I work for a nonprofit, it's uh, cultural survival, and um, we employ 25 people located in 19 countries around the world. A lot of our staff members are women and indigenous. A lot of our people are traditional knowledge holders for their own people and ceremony holders for their own people. And every dollar that we raise is actually needs to be raised um, for the work that we do. We support communities globally through grant making, um, through advocacy work and capacity building trainings. And uh, yeah, and if someone's listening to this um, um, interview and that they think that they have something to support us with even um, a share or a like on Instagram or cultural survival's web um, page on Facebook would be very happy to, to have us have you support us in in this capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think the Western civilized mind has a certain way of understanding what the big problems of the world are and what the solutions are. And so we put our money and our resources uh, into solving the problems as we see them, uh, which can leave out the kind of work that you're doing, Mm -hmm. uh, which maybe 
you know, for, for, it's hard to say, well, you know, how much carbon dioxide is going to be reduced by supporting cultural survival, but there's a level of causality in this world that the civilized modern mind cannot understand, mm -hmm. uh, but we can, or cannot yet understand, or is just learning to understand. And I would love to see more of our resource and just actually it's more of our trust go toward the kind of work that you're doing. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'll just, you know, add to your appeal there and also just thank you for doing this work. It's so, so important. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I yeah. appreciate it so much. And again, yeah. we want to move away from um, being beneficiaries to being the protagonist in this story. So support the, the cultural shift, support the shift of indigenous peoples being and offering the solutions to the current crisis. And part of the recovery of our souls, really. Exactly. Yeah. We, we're the beneficiaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all medicine. <laughs> yes. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much, Galena, for uh, joining me in this conversation. And uh, you know, I'd love to keep in touch. Yes, and me too. Who knows in the future what, what will happen. Yes, exactly. And thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.